Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're with a household name, Mitch Album. He's one of the only writers I can think of who's had number one bestsellers in both the fiction and the nonfiction categories. His 1997 book, Tuesdays with Maury, was a worldwide favorite and adapted for film in 1999, starring Hank Azaria as Mitch. It was then adapted for the stage as well in 2002, a production I saw, which was great. And if all that isn't cool enough, he's also a songwriter. He's worked as a nighttime piano player. He's won many AP Sports Editors Awards and was inducted into the National Sports Media Association Hall of Fame. Mitch, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me here. Well, today we're going to have some ouzo, which is fitting because Greece, and this is the national drink of Greece, is the setting of your new terrific novel, The Little Liar. Thank you. Cheers, great to meet you. Cheers to you too. Hmm. I'm, I'm amazed that you'll be able to continue this interview after that. A <laughs> couple I, more I, of those, I, and I'll be asking the questions. I'll Thank that, you. That would be helpful, actually, yeah. if you could pick up any slack. <laughs> uh, but that's it's uh, it's a terrific book. I really enjoyed it. But Thank I want to go back to, to earlier Mitch days. You've had some advanced education. I know you have a master's from Columbia in both journalism and business, which yeah. is not a, a heavily beaten path toward either sports talk radio or being a novelist. So You're when right. you were getting those degrees, did you have other plans? Well, my other plans were kind of what led to those degrees. Uh, I was a musician uh, all throughout high school and college. I only went to college out of my parents' insistence. I was sure that I was just going to be a musician or a music producer or something like that. And um, it was only when music didn't work out. I was here in New York City where we are now, when music didn't work out, I sort of wanted something that was creative, but you know, maybe had a little bit more of a, if you work hard, you actually may get somewhere, as opposed to music where you can work hard forever, and mm -hmm. maybe not. So I kind of fell into writing uh, by volunteering at a local newspaper out in Queens that came out once a week and that they put into your shopping cart. And that was really the first writing that I'd ever done. You know, I, I, I think I always had storytelling capabilities, but I never really wrote. I, I, you know, wrote music. So eventually I decided I like this writing thing. This is fun. And, uh, you know, maybe I should pursue it a little bit. So I ended up going to graduate school at Columbia. And then while I was there, 
they said, you know, we have this program while you're here. If you want to get an MBA, you can go one extra year and you can get an MBA. And I was like, eh, okay, I'll get one of those too. Not that I had any interest in business. Um, so I got one of those. And now I have those two degrees, which I think I just last week stopped paying for <laughs> on student loan uh, things. And um, yeah. And so then when I, I saw up- on Instagram some throwback photos we were just talking about. It was in Greece, shirts off, some drinking. Maybe it was Uzo. I'm not sure. Was that Probably. before the grad school? That These was like before. Making That's the what, music work yeah. phase. I really, uh, Doug, had, had one day I'm going to write this book. I, I ended up in Greece by accident. It was a is a long story, and your show doesn't probably have time for it. But basically, I ran out of money on a post college trip across Europe, and I was stuck in Athens waiting for uh, money to be transferred to me by my parents, mm-hmm. and it was going to take a couple days. So I was sleeping in a youth hostel, and somebody was reading a newspaper in a bunk above me, and they said, "Oh, this looks like a cool job." It says, "Wanted piano player." for luxury resort on island of crete so i said let me see that because i was a piano player i don't want to be a musician and um i ended up calling this number and they said well can you come down right now and i said okay you know i'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt uh, i go down figure there's going to be a long line of people because who wouldn't want a job like that right i walk into a place nobody there just a just an office no piano there's a woman behind a desk and she says are you the piano player i said yeah <laughs> She said, do you drink? I said, what? She said, do you drink? You have a drinking problem? I said, uh, I drink, but I don't have a drinking problem. She says, what time can you go? No asking me to play <laughs> or anything. I said, go where? She said, Crete. And they, in those days, you could write a ticket oh, in an office. to Crete to go. Yeah, I was in Athens. So she writes me a ticket in her office, hands it to me, and gives me some money. On the way to the airport, I stop in a department store, run in, and grab a suit the cheapest suit I can find with the money that she gave me because I'm wearing shorts and a T-shirt. I, I ended up having to put um, safety clips uh, up on it because there was no time to tailor it. So I just got some safety pins and t- put up the pant cuffs and everything. Get on this airplane, fly to Crete, land at the airport. I don't speak a word of Greek. I have a piece of paper with directions. I hand it to the cab driver. He's okay, okay, okay. I get in his car. He starts driving. We're going around the island. Now it's pitch black. I just see the moon over the, over the sea, but that's it. And all of a sudden he turns off the road and we start going into the woods. And now I'm thinking, uh-oh, you know, like I got the first serial killer cab driver in <laughs> Crete. Right? And uh, he takes me into the woods and I said, where are we going? Where are we going? I told him, no, no, And he stops the car in this little house in the woods, and he's taking me home. And he motions me to come in, and I walk into his house. He starts yelling at his wife, well, I have an American, American, you know, America, good, America, good. And she's, they want me to sit down and have dinner with them. So I keep pointing my watch. I say, I got to go, I got to go. It's okay, okay, okay. They grab a chicken, a watermelon, and some feta cheese, and we get into the car, and the wife is feeding me over the, <laughs> over the back seat as I'm eating. I'm drizzling all over my new suit. I get out. We finally get to this resort. It's a beautiful resort. I walk in. I'm supposed to meet this guy named Peter Papadopoulos. I walk in. I say, Peter Papadopoulos is some guy, you know, real, looks like the boss. And he says to me, you the piano player? I said, yeah, over there. And there's a piano in the middle. It's Friday night. There's a million people around. He says, Go. 
I have to go. I don't have any music. I don't have anything. I sit down and I just thought, I think I played Misty like a hundred different ways. It's a good thing you actually can play piano. Well, that was, I I knew I could play (laughs) piano. It's just, you know. So he's listening. I'm watching. He's drinking. He's drinking. I keep watching. Man, this guy drinks a lot. And after about an hour, he says, okay, come with me. And it turns out it's his birthday. And in Greece, on your birthday, if somebody buys you a drink, this guy should do your show, you have to drink it. So he's sloshed now. And we're down in the nightclub. And a Greek umpa band is playing, and he says, uh, "Do you sing?" And I said, "Do I sing? Well, I, I can sing. Go sing with the band." I said, "No, no, I'm not gonna sing with the. Go sing with the band if you want the job." So I have to go over to the band with a translator, and they say the owner wants me to sing something with you. And the piano player, like smoking a cigarette with sunglasses on inside, and he takes out a cigarette. And he goes, uh, "Elvis Presley," and I said, "Okay, okay, I can sing Elvis Presley. Uh, Bruce White shoes." I said, okay, I can do Blue Suede Shoes. Uh, so we get on stage, the lights are all off, and, you know, Blue Suede Shoes starts cold, you know, it's just one, two, three, one for the money, two, like that. <laughs> and the lights go on, and I start singing this, and every mouth in the place just drops, you know, because they all they've been hearing is this oompa, oompa, oompa music, and all of a sudden yeah, there's me. You got Elvis. And I, I had this moment like, I'm never going to be here again. I can do anything I want, you know. And I did like full out Elvis, shaking back and forth out into the stands. <laughs> I was like in one of those clam bake movies that he did. And I get this standing ovation when we're finished. And I figure I'm going home tomorrow morning, so this doesn't matter. And I go back to the table with the boss, and he's laughing. And he goes, I'm going to hire you to be my piano player and my singer. And I'm like, I'm going home tomorrow. <laughs> and he says, and I'll give you $350 cash and your own room and everything you want. And I said, okay, I'll it's be here tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I flew back to Athens, picked up my stuff, flew back out, was made up for the Saturday night show. And I stayed there for seven months oh my God. as their piano player and their singer. And it was like the craziest, wildest, most fun time of my life life and if i hadn't been in such a hurry to get back to new york to start my quote unquote music career yeah. i would have stayed there forever that's it those that's like the crazy travel story everybody dreams of you know it is charm life and one day i'm going to write the book about that i went back there two years ago for the first time to crete in 40 something years i went back and the piano was still there and uh, the last guy who remembered me had retired like a year earlier. But I said to him, you think I could come back one year and just get my old job back? And they said, sure, sure. Yeah, we'll take you back. So I'm, <laughs> one year I'm going to do that and then write about the difference between the jobs when you start out and when, you know, when you're retiring. That would be some good research for yeah. your book. So you make it back to the States. You wind up in Detroit. And I'm a, I'm a National League guy from Philly. So the only thing I know about Detroit sports is Magnum P.I. was wearing the Tiger's hat in that era. But yeah. in 87, you start. Detroit sports radio and print too, I guess. Well, 85, I started at the newspaper, yeah. And then I started doing radio in about 86 or 87, yeah. Yeah. So how did you wind up going, you know, more middle of the country into sports? Well, you really want every one of these stories? Well, I mean, keep it tight. (laughs) All right. Well, I did not do that last time. Uh, So I'll keep it tighter. Um, When I got out of Columbia. I was not interested in writing sports, but I had worked at Sport Magazine to help pay my tuition. And so all my clips were sports. So every time I applied for a job, they kept saying, well, don't you want to be in sports? Mm -hmm. I ended up getting offered a job in in Florida. Uh, I won some awards for my writing and I ended up getting offered a job in Detroit. It was the first time I set foot in Detroit uh, was to take the job there. And I thought that I would stay there for two years and then I'd be on my way. And I'm still there. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, it's in the bloodstream. And I know. So then the, the, the real like book writing started. You did uh, the Bo Schembechler, Schembechler, Schembechler. Yes, yeah, so too much Uzo already. Yeah, see, eighty nine. Pretty soon you're not going to be able to say Bo. <laughs> Get ready to. I'm going to pass the baton in like five minutes. <laughs> and then uh, Fab Five book in in ninety three mm-hmm. on the Michigan uh, that incredible class they had that Michigan yeah. basketball team. So Which then they're though, making into a movie. Are, that's yet to come. Yeah, it's being done right now. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. I love those like 30 for 30s ESPN does. This sounds no, like it's yeah, this, no, this is a that. big out movie. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. I'll look forward to that. I was, I'm, I'm a Duke fan. I went to Duke and I was. Uh, well, I have to go now. <laughs> so I, I was at Duke in that era too when those guys yeah. came in. Uh, uh-huh. It's just incredible. Uh, so though 97 is Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah. Was that kind of a before and after for you because that was just such a worldwide phenomenon? <sighs> Yeah, that was a life-changing experience, but it wasn't supposed to be, Doug, a worldwide phenomenon. It was a labor of love that came about by accident. You know, I, I, happened, I happened to see Maury um, on Nightline talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease. And that was the first time that I'd seen him in 16 years since I had graduated from college, despite the fact that I was extremely close with him in college. And he promised, made me promise to stay in touch, and I promised, and then I broke that promise every year for 16 years while I was busy doing all the things that you listed in the introduction and being very selfish and very ambitious. And so I went to go see him once, and I was so taken with his attitude about life and how you know positive he was about things. He seemed a lot happier with his life than I was at that point, and he was 78 and dying, and I was 37 and perfectly healthy. So I started going back next Tuesday and the next Tuesday and what turned out to be all the Tuesdays he had left in his life to try to find kind of the answer to that question, you know, what do we know when we're really looking death in the face? Not talking about like one day I'm going to die, but like mm-hmm. pretty soon I'm going to die. That, you know, puts everything into perspective. And wouldn't it be good to have that perspective now when you're young enough and healthy enough to do something about it. The book was an accident. You know, I found out he was terribly in debt for his medical bills. And he said, I'm going to die twice. First, when I die. And then when wherever I am in the hereafter, I realize my family has to sell their house and everything to pay these bills I've accumulated for dying from ALS. And so I got the idea to write a little book to pay his medical bills. And the truth is I came around this city, New York, and got turned down almost everywhere everywhere. Mm-hmm. Boring, depressing. You're a sports writer. Nobody's going to want to read a book like that. And uh, it was only three weeks before he died, we found somebody who was willing to give us enough money to pay his bills. I gave him all the money. After he died, I wrote it. Maury, Maury Schwartz never read one word of Tuesdays with Maury, which is what I find amazing because it went from this tiny little book that nobody expected to do anything. I mean, they published it in August Okay, think about it, you know, like a meaning of life book in beach season, you know, it doesn't have a chance. And they only printed 20,000 copies for the whole world. And I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car the rest of my life. (laughs) And then um, something happened and I can't ever explain it. People just started reading it and reading it and it became this this whole huge thing and it changed my life because instead of people wanting to ask me about who's going to win the Super Bowl, Everybody who came up to me said, my mother died of cancer, and the last thing we did was read your book together. Can we talk about it? And my eyes became open to all the grief that there is in the world and the the hurting and the struggles that people go through. And when it came time to 
do any more books. Sports was no longer of interest to me, you know, and it hasn't been since. I like it, you know, from a newspaper point of view. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of a newspaper thing, but to spend a year working on a book about some athlete at this stage when I could spend a year working on a topic that I think makes a big difference is a choice that I, I've made. So that's how I got here. That's interesting. Well, that, that actually leads well into process. And, and um, I, I want to talk more specifically about The Little Liar, your new novel, in a bit. But I want to talk a little bit more about your process. That's a magical way that Tuesdays with Maury came about, mm-hmm. and it was you know meant to pay us hospital bills and then so much more and connected with so many people. But a couple sort of geeky questions on process. Okay. So you've, you've as I mentioned in the at the top here, you've had unbelievable success both on the fiction and nonfiction side. How, how is it different for you in terms of process when you approach one or the other? Well, I always say that uh, nonfiction, the struggle is, boy, this story would be so much better if he had a twin brother, but of course he doesn't, so what can you do? Fiction, the challenge is, boy, this would be so much better if he had a twin brother. Hey, I can give him a twin brother. And then 60 seconds later, the voice says, maybe it should be a twin sister. And that's the problem the possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. And so in the one hand, you work with what you got. And the other hand, you have to limit everything that you could have, or you'll never stop recreating and recreating. So I have to go into different modes. Because I've worked in nonfiction for so long and in journalism, that's a really natural mode for me. And reporting is very natural to me, you know. Um, When I write fiction, which is now more frequent, Depending on the nature of the book, like this new one, The Little Liar, or another book I wrote called The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto, they're a little bit historical fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, this new one is set during the Holocaust. I had to do a lot of research about Greece and all that went on. And that's perfectly natural to me. I do that all the time. I interviewed a lot of people and all. So that just felt like journalism. And then it's like, okay, now I have the backdrop. It's like I have the stage setting for the story. I have the scaffolding. Now let me just bring in characters that I invent. Um, So I can't say that. I think fiction is more fun mm-hmm. if I had to pick it that way because uh, the best you can do with nonfiction is I'm stating this really well, you know, mm-hmm. and you can be proud of yourself for stating it. But in fiction, you can say, I'm creating this and wow, you know, like that didn't exist before and now it's good. I, I remember when they made the movie of The Five People You Meet in Heaven which took place in an, uh, an amusement park that I kind of created from my own head in the 1920s you know, when it began. And I walked onto the set, and it was called Ruby Pier in the book, and I walked onto the set of an actual amusement park that they built, and it said Ruby Pier on it. And I remember the feeling like, holy cow, I mean, like, that didn't exist except in this head of mine, and now look at it. So it's a real thing, you know. Mm-hmm. This is a real mm-hmm. part. So it's that sort of feeling, yeah. you know, that you. I can think get. you're you're hitting a, you know, it's exactly what people want to read more and more these days, and you're straddling both sides of it. You know, there's because nonfiction, what really works, what I enjoy a lot of these, you know, a David Grand book, The Wager. It's narrative nonfiction, a, a true story told in this novelistic way that is gripping, and you're you're going through it like it's a thriller. Yeah. yeah. Or yours, deeply researched, historically accurate fiction right. where you've taken some liberties with your characters and some right. scenes but it's you know this stuff happened in greece right. so yeah it, they're very they're getting closer to that kind of same thing i, I love reading both historical yeah. fiction that's well done and you know with a, a deeply researched book that's that's uh telling a lot of truth but you know taking some some narrative liberties too um do you think like the, the journalism I, I remember reading on writing by stephen king 
another member of our band. Is that is he in the band? Oh yeah. So I, I loved on writing. I I got a lot out of that. And he talked about his early days in journalism, and it was like boot camp editing. Like you just had to turn this thing around and fix yeah. it. Did that early stuff help you with Huge. the way you edit? And how do you edit? Is it, do you like sprint to the finish and then do a revision? Or are you editing as you I, go? Uh, I do both. Uh, I am notorious for editing literally right up into the moment that they go to the printer. I once actually chased a book, Fab Five. I chased it to the printer. I came into <laughs> New York and was literally changing things on the mock-ups that they were handing over to the printer. I was penciling out words and things like that. Um, journalism, especially sports journalism, trains you greatly for this kind of work. It teaches you, first of all, that you may have to kill some babies, you know, uh, because it doesn't fit or you can't get it in on time and mm -hmm. you can't fall in love with your sentences, you know, because you'll never finish. And that helps you when you're writing a book, be it fiction or nonfiction, because, you know, there are some times where you just got to get on to the next paragraph. You know, you can't mm -hmm. just sit there and mull it over forever. Uh, I used to have to write my newspaper column to fit X number of inches. And so I, I actually even learned how to like, okay, if I have a widow word that hangs over on a line, I go into the paragraph and pull out a couple of words in the middle there or change them or use, short, use shorter <laughs> words to square it up and get by myself three more lines of actual copy. Right. So I've learned, you learn how to substitute words out and, and uh, you learn how to work on time and with deadlines. So it was, it's not just a boot camp like Stephen says in the early years, it can be a, a an ongoing, mm -hmm. you know, training uh, uh, technique. And I found, you know, as I continue to write journalism, I don't do it very much, but I still do. Um, it, it keeps you sharp, you know, yeah. keeps you in shape. And it's all, it's all storytelling in the end. Even if you're recapping a ball That's game, it. there's an arc and there's a, you know, you're taking the reader through an, an experience. I learned how to, I always say, I learned how to be a writer. If you want to talk about process, I learned how to be a writer at the kitchen table not at a typewriter or, or anything else. I, I learned because I had a really large family, and when they would get together on the holidays, I would watch and listen to the storytelling mm. that took place. And I noticed that my aunts seemed to be really bad at it because they would tell stories and worry about the details of the year, you know, like, it was 1945. No, no, no. No, no it was 46. <laughs> well, when was Joey born? Was it, 40, was it 45? And, and the other uncles would go, ah, shut up. We're not listening to you. Yeah. Then my uncles would start talking. And like my Uncle Eddie who was the inspiration for the five people you meet in heaven. And he would go, so there we were. We were on the hill, see? And they were dropping bombs on us, see? And we were going out there. And I wasn't sure if I was going to live or die. And I see the guy over there. And I take out my gun. And I'm thinking, well, that's how you tell a story. Yeah. And I would listen so carefully to how they did it that when it came time for me to start writing, I didn't even realize I had all this storytelling inside. Yeah, the oral tradition. Yeah. yeah, and I've always been a pretty good storyteller, whether I'm telling somebody a story um, you know, verbally or mm -hmm. writing it down. So I have one more question on process, but before I do that, I got to round back to Stephen King and your band. So who's in it? Who's doing what in instruments? Okay, so the band is the Rock Bottom Remainders. It's been around since the early 90s. There's a lot of people float in and out of this band. It's a little, <laughs> little bit like Ringo's all-star band. But uh, the basic group is uh, Stephen King, Amy Tan, Dave Barry, Ridley Pearson, Scott Turow, myself. James McBride is with us some of the time. Um, 
Frank McCourt was with us over the years. We've had many musicians have played with us. Uh, Warren Zevon used to tour with us. Roger McGuinn still wow. does come out and tour with us. We played with Springsteen. We played with John Fogarty. We played, these are guys who just like to slum it and yeah. play with some people who are really bad. That's funny. And what does Scott Turow play? Nothing. <laughs> most of them play nothing. Uh, most of them are really bad, and they don't mind my saying it. Uh, in fact, the whole band is kind of bad. And as Dave yeah. says, we play music as well as Metallica writes novels. And um, that's funny. We but we don't charge anything. You know, we just raise money for charity, <laughs> and we're very punctual. You know who you should get? Who's on the show? David Duchovny, who's written a number of books, and is a he's actually he'd be good. He'd he's be a one good of your musician. good musicians. Yeah, he's good. Well, he's, he's a bit of a TV star. I don't know. It might, might he might. Be too qualified for us, you know. We like to well. just keep it the literary. But if I run into him, I'll ask yeah. him. Yeah. All right. Last question on process. Then, do you outline these things in advance? I know it's with a book. You have these four main characters, one of which is our title character, the little liar, and yeah. You do some fascinating things with the voice and narration. But is it outlined, and this is sort of figured out ahead of time? Or you just um, get in there and rip this book, the little liar, a little more than I did other ones. I used this program, uh, Scribner. Uh, which is it, it allows you to kind of create categories and keep the categories sort of intertwined with one another. And, uh, you know, you move your little subjects around, you move your, your characters around because there was so much research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't want to say, oh, didn't I read an article where it said I, I had to keep the article? So I kept throwing those articles into, you know, articles about Nazis who escaped to America or articles about... Uh, uh, this concentration camp that the Nazis decorated and, 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 and made look like it was a work camp and, and uh, you know, all true stories. Um, but once I start writing, uh, all that I just use as like, it's like a bucket with stuff in it that I reach over and pull something out of every now and then. But I don't outline the plot or the way things are going to go. That's more of a feel thing. You know, I, I, I start from the beginning mm -hmm. and usually I know the ending. I don't know the middles, but I know how I want to start it, and I know how I want to end it. And the ending is my North Star, and that's all I sail towards. And mm -hmm. I just kind of keep going, and every day you know, I'll come down, I'll start reading it from the very beginning again, because I always figure, what's the point of starting reading it in the middle? Nobody you're going to give this book to is going to start reading it in the middle. If it doesn't work from the beginning, that's why, like most books, if you hand, of my books, if you hand them to me, I could recite yeah. the first seven pages because I read them over so many times by starting over at the beginning and getting to the end. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. 
Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's move on to The, the Little Liar. It's set World War II, covers the Holocaust. It's set in Greece, largely in Greece, which is a, uh, such an interesting way in because it doesn't get a lot of coverage in the textbooks. That but was the point. Greece and the Balkans was a was a key area in the war, and Germany had a big presence. So, can you take us through? You know, Nico is our our title character. Um, maybe you can sort of explain the title in, in connection yeah. with Nico. So um, it takes place during the war. You're right, but it also takes place before the war, during the war, and for forty years afterwards. So, it, uh, first of all, I didn't want to write. Uh, I don't want to say a typical Holocaust book, but a familiar Holocaust book. I've seen a lot of Holocaust books that are quite good, but they begin and end the same way. You know, begin with the Germans raiding, you know, someplace, and they end with liberation of the concentration camp. And in between, everything takes place during the concentration camp. I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write something about how the lies of that era became, you know, really... The Nazis were able to do what they did, not because they had bigger guns, they had better lies. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a cautionary tale for <clears throat> the time that we're in. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was going to be about lying. And uh, the way the book basically sets up is little Nico, who is 11 years old and lives in Thessalonica, Greece, um, has never told a lie before in his life. And uh, he's so honest that he, they call him snow in the neighborhood because he's pure as snow. And when the Nazis come in, and invade his town, they find out about him uh, and decide to use him as a weapon. And they say, we can let you, they kidnap him essentially, and they say, we'll let you go back to your family if you just do this little task for us, stand on the train platform and tell the passengers who are getting on the trains that they're going to a good place, they're going to get jobs, they're going to get new homes, everything's going to be fine, and they're going to trust you because you're honest. Mm -hmm. So he figures, okay, you know, I can do that, and he thinks he's telling the truth, and it's only on the last day when the last train is going out that he sees his own family being shoved into a Mm boxcar, and someone yells, they're taking us to die, and that's when he suddenly realizes he's that he's, he's been a pawn and he's been lying and they won't even let him get on the train. The mm-hmm. Nazi officer who tricked him pulls him away and the train takes off with his family. And it's what happens to him from that point forward for the next 40 years and several other characters around him mm-hmm. um, as he has to deal with the consequences of this, of this lie. And uh, it really examines, you know, the price we pay for the deceptions that we and, that we and what we're make. willing to do for forgiveness. I yes. wanted to ask you about a line in the book. It's on page 70 of, of the galley, at least. You, you say, evil seeks the dark, um, which is a powerful uh, thought and I think was certainly true then. But from October 7 of this year, I, do you still think that's true? Does evil still seek the dark? Well, what I meant by that, I think the line that comes after it is... <clears throat> is uh, 
you know, not because it's embarrassed, but because it's easier to operate that way, you know? Right. So the line that comes after, uh, I'll read the whole thing. Evil seeks the dark, not because it is ashamed. Darkness is simply more efficient, fewer complications, less outrage. But that's that's really part two of my question. I don't, I, I get that it was initially about being ashamed and the Nazis are saying, look, even, the, and you see this in the headlines a lot today, even the Nazis, you know, tried to hide this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the blowback would have been huge. And then it was in 1946. Yeah, but right, what, what I'm finding now is maybe the light is more efficient because the no. more protests I see are in favor as opposed to against. Well, you know, this is a different time than when I was writing, the time that I was writing about and social media puts everything in the light. But it's still darkness when it's deception. And you'll notice that even what Hamas did, they didn't, admit to what they did. You know, they claimed it was a military operation. That's darkness. Uh, it was just because, you know, you have mm-hmm. cameras and ultimately what exposed it was cameras that some of these mm-hmm. militants or terrorists were wearing that was captured by the Israelis and put up there and say, you see, does this look like a military operation to you? Someone mm-hmm. is is killing a grandmother or killing a baby. So I think evil would like to operate in the dark if it could, but uh, we live in kind of a different world now. Yeah, I guess it's it's forced into the light, but uh, yeah, sometimes the light is um, sparking different kinds of outrage on on both sides. But mm-hmm. that you you raise another point that I wanted to ask you about the book, uh, which is the the concept of changing the language, and that's something we saw. Then you say it in reference yeah. to Hitler and what the Nazis were doing. That we're going to call it something else, and then right. it'll feel like something else. I that's see right. that a lot today that's too. It's a hundred percent true then, and it's a hundred percent true now. Yeah. And I write about. I never use Hitler's name in the book. I refuse to use his name in any book. The Wolf. I refer yeah. to him as the Wolf, and I say that he rose on the on the back of lies, which is true. And if you want to lie, the first thing you do is change the language. Mm-hmm. And it might surprise people to learn that the law that gave Hitler the right to take Jewish homes, take Jewish businesses, force Jews to wear uh, yellow stars, you know, keep them off of buses and schools and all that, was actually a law that was called the law to relieve the distress of the German people. Now, who would vote against a law like that? You know, it's like the Inflation Reduction Act. It doesn't matter if it actually reduces inflation. Who would be against it? And that's what Hitler did all the time. He he didn't call it murder. He called it, you know, uh, reappropriation or, uh, you know, and he didn't he didn't call his plan to exterminate people anything but a final solution. There were words were were powerfully misused during that time. And I show in the book all the deceptions mm-hmm. from the from the smallest kind, like the way that the Nazis would tell these Jewish uh, passengers going on these trains headed towards their, to their own death, you're going to Poland, give us all your money, and we'll give you these receipts, uh, because your Greek money is not going to be good there, but give us these receipts, and when you get to Poland, turn these receipts in, and you can get your money in Polish zlotkis or whatever they're called. And people did it. Mm-hmm. And they were laughing at them, like, look at these idiots believing us, you know? Uh, so they used the truth against their victims. And um, language is the first way that you do that. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, so, so many things in this book resonate uh, today. Uh, you know, this, this is a relevant subject, but I think in, in the last five weeks, more relevant than ever. So it's yeah. very, very timely that this book is out. Yeah. Uh, I can't take today. credit for that. I started it two years ago. I didn't, didn't know that it would time out this way. Yeah. Oh, it's like, it's like Jennifer Egan had a book on, uh, that was like so connected to nine 11 and it came out right at, yeah. Um, you mentioned truth in this and, and talking about lies. Just one last question on the book in, in terms of your choice of narrator. So uh-huh. so listeners know in the first few pages, you identify the narrator as truth, sort of almost yeah. like this uh, 
god of truth, like yeah, yeah, a, sort of a mystical yeah. figure that's taking us through the tale. Yeah. How did you, I guess that's in connection with your, your object of sort of explaining how lies drove much of the narrative. Well, can I have the book for a sec? Sure. So the reason I did that was this. You can trust the story you're about to hear. You can trust it because I am telling it to you, and I'm the only thing in this world you can trust. I'm the shadow you cannot outrun, the mirror that holds your final reflection. You may duck my gaze for all your days on earth, but let me assure you, I get the last look. I am truth. Now, wouldn't you want to read a book that started that way? Absolutely, especially so, if Mitch Albin's going to read it. Well, but that's, but that's why I did it, because I thought it would be compelling. And I thought that, uh, you know, if, you, if you're a third person commenting on what happens to the truth, mm -hmm. okay, maybe you can do it. If you're a first person and you're commenting on what happens to the truth, everything's going to be seen through your particular eyes as that character. But if you are truth commenting on what happens to the truth, now it's like truth gets to say, how could you do this to me? How could you mm -hmm. break me in so many pieces the way that you are? And there's almost an indignance to human behavior mm -hmm. that you couldn't do if you were a third person without sounding haughty and you couldn't do if you're a first person without sounding, well, that's just your take on it. Mm -hmm. But I did this once before with the book, The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto, where music was the narrator. And it was a lot of fun to do it then because that was a much more lighthearted book. But... I remembered that technique and I said, in this case, you know, the victim in this book is truth. Why not make truth the narrator and show how, you know, it was, it was ripped to pieces during that time. It's a brilliant way to go through it. And, and not to spoil anything for readers, but there's a twist in there as well. Yeah. And um, last question on this topic, and then we'll get into some, some funner stuff with the lightning round. But I have seen a post uh, that you did on Instagram where you described yourself as a prisoner of hope. Hmm. Are you are you still feeling and I don't know when you posted it actually it might have been an older video but are you still you know since October 7 are you still feeling that way Yes I am um and the book is too you know I don't want to uh paint a, a story of it that is somehow dark or 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 awful you know or Mitch album doesn't write books like that why is why did he write a book like that In the end it's it's a hopeful book and in hmm. fact there are scenes in it that because of the poignancy of the backdrop become that much more hopeful. You know, one of, one mm -hmm. of my favorite scenes to write in it or that I enjoyed reading anyhow after I wrote it was in the concentration camp at night after the end of a terrible day, the grandfather figure gathers everybody in his group in these barracks around him and says, we all have to say one good thing that happened today, one good thing that happened during our day in our concentration camp. And, you know, what can you come up with? I had an extra spoonful of soup. My rotted tooth fell out. The guard didn't beat me today. I saw a bird flying in the sky. It is that human um, desire to seek out hope in the most hopeless situation that makes us different, mm -hmm. you know, from, from, it, from all other creatures on earth and keeps us going. And Viktor Frankl, when he wrote, you know, Man's Search for Meeting about the people in the concentration camp, said the ones who survived were the ones who felt that there was somehow still a future ahead. And the ones who did not were the ones who, who said it's hopeless. So I'm never going to be one who says it's hopeless yeah. because if people in those situations can be hopeful, I can. And I, I don't know how much of this you know about me, Doug, but I, I operate an orphanage in Haiti and I'm there every month for the last 14 years. And I have 65 kids there currently and I have... I admitted them. I went to where they came from. Um, I, I saw 
them living in holes in the ground and or being abandoned under trees or left at medical clinics and nobody came and picked them up. And these kids are nothing if not hopeful. Mm. And they look for the future and they have an attitude towards life and faith and gratitude that embarrasses me in how mm. pure they are. It's amazing you're doing that because, you know, the, the farther we get from that time and our connection to that time, the more we can take for granted of how easy things are. And it is a message to never forget. Right. And your work in Haiti I, can help you never forget that kind of a well, connection to... One of the reasons know, I, I made it about kids, you know, it's, it's really, it starts with, you know, three, 11, 12, and 14-year-olds because I spend so much time with kids and I see how resilient they are. And sometimes you can tell a more poignant story uh, for adults if you actually use kids as the, mm. as the protagonists. Well, it is, a, and it's not a dark book. I mean, it, it deals with the darkest of subjects, but mm. in a hopeful and inspiring and empowering kind of a way. And there's Thank real you. like love and beautiful moments in there as well. All right, last question before the lightning round. What is next for, for you? Uh, well, I tend to tend to like uh, collapse after I write a book, <laughs> uh, and I'm in the collapsed mode right now. Oh uh, man, you go, got a whole book tour around, and well, I promote it, but I don't write, you know, during yeah. this time. And I'll start writing in January again. Um, and I I do know what I, you know. A lot of times I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I do know what the next book is going to be. Much lighter topic and a little fiction or nonfiction. Fiction, and it's uh, it's basically. Uh, a uh, kind of magical story about a guy who gets two chances to do everything in his life. And what would you do if you always had always had it one in reserve? How would you approach your life? So um, I love that. Yeah, that'll be a little more fun uh, backdrop, but uh, and that'll come out in a couple of years. And That's in between, great. I'll just keep going to Haiti and, and, and rocking with a band. Well, yeah, well, if what <laughs> if what we do is called rocking, then yeah. I got I'm gonna have to. Where, where can I find information on the band? Is it on your website? Oh, or if you just gig? type in "rock bottom remainders" on the internet, you'll right. get more than you get more you than schedule. you bargained for. Yeah. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. That sounds good. I'll bring the Uzo. Okay. All right. For the lightning round, your favorite book as a kid? Um, greatest NBA moments. Uh, there were ten, and uh, I remember the ones I remember were Wilt Chamberlain scoring a hundred points. And uh, Havlicek stole the ball. Mm. Uh, I don't remember the rest of them, but uh, I must have read that a thousand times. Havlicek stole the ball. W weren't they yelling that? Was the announcer saying yeah, it during yeah. the game? That's Johnny what Most. Saying yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I remember that. A book or books you're reading now? No, you're on tour, so maybe nothing. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not reading a whole lot now. I did read Lessons in Chemistry just mm. a couple of weeks ago because I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. I liked it. You know, yeah. it's I liked it. Uh, I'll have to watch the TV show, see what they did in that. That's right. It's getting a lot of, a lot of buzz. Yeah. Least attended book event ever. For me? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> when I first put out a collection book of my columns at the Free Press, I went to a um, bookstore and nobody came for like the first 20 minutes and I was sitting there at a table with my books and finally a woman wanders over and I think, oh, at last. And she wanders over and she stands in front of the table and she says, where are the cookbooks? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I always remember that now when I go out to an event and I never am confident that there's going to be people there, even though it hasn't happened in a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, now you probably have to you. buy the book to get in and get a seat and you must be... Uh, uh, it's a little different ones. than those days, but I still have the same fear. Uh, best college basketball career ever. Like, which player had the best college basketball only career? Only and didn't have a good pro career. You mean just not even considering pro? Just those, oh. those years of college. But he could have gone pro. Could have gone pro. 
Uh, Grant Hill. Mm. Because you know him from Duke. I mean, he was great as a freshman, and he stayed there for four years, and he had a lot of success. I mean, most guys, you have to go back. You know, I mean, Bill Walton, yeah. obviously, and you know, guys who stayed for four years in their programs. And these days, most everybody, yeah. they stay for three weeks, and then they transfer. It's interesting you say Grant, because I actually, my, my own thought on this is either Leitner or Walton. But uh, yeah, Grant, well, Grant's in there, too, yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, he had championships and all Yeah, that. but the Leitner as a freshman... Well, I mean, Grant was on that team as a freshman, right? Yeah, Leitner was a great freshman because Danny but Ferry they was win? gone by then. Yeah, did they, they win won Leitner's. In fact, Leitner was definitely there for both of the championships. Yeah. And he was the man for both yeah. of those championships. I knew Christian because he played for the Pistons. I certainly knew Grant. Grant and I, <laughs> Grant and I got in trouble once. He wanted to find a house, and, um, and there was one near where I lived. So I, call, I called him up. I said, hey, I saw it for sale sign you want to go look at the sales? He said, yeah so we went over and we there was nobody there he didn't want to go with a realtor or anything just want to check it out so we went uh into this long driveway it's kind of in the woods and we get out of the car and we we start walking around the house this looks like a nice house and we go around to the backyard and well, look at nice i don't think anybody lives here i think it's empty and we're looking and we kind of like walk up to the windows and we put our hands up to the windows and when we put our hands up to the windows we are face to face with the mother and two kids oh, no. who are staring at us <laughs> and what do we do we run <laughs> because because what else would an nba player do but run and we run to the front of the house and by the time we get to the front of the house to get into the car she's at the front door saying grant hill you know like that so we end up having to take our shoes off and come oh in and i hope they have the kids. security footage of all this happening thank somewhere. god they didn't but I mean, if you ever meet grant hill just say mitch album told me about some time you guys were trying to break into a house and he'll start laughing that's very funny uh greatest baseball player ever oh my gosh uh that I saw or ever? Never. Uh, Maybe actually that you saw. That would be better. Uh, well, I watched Miguel Cabrera, you know, and, and he's about as good a hitter as I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I, we didn't win a lot, you know, uh, but he's about a good, as good. A, and, and I watched Justin Verlander for most of his career, and I, mm-hmm. I marveled at Justin Verlander throwing 96 miles an hour in the first inning and 99 miles an hour in the eighth inning. Yeah. And I kept saying to him, you are supposed to tire out. You understand? <laughs> I don't know how I do it, but he did. Yeah, just loosen it up. Yeah. Best piano bar in New York City. I, I don't know. Well, I worked in one for many years, but it's closed now. Uh, it was an Irish place, Mac, Mac something or not far from Times Square, and I was the piano player there. Yeah, it had big red neon letters, and I was a piano player there, and I got paid $25 a night. Uh, that's the only one I know. And How about in the world? Best piano bar in the world. Oh. Different answer? Mm, yeah, I don't remember the names. I'm sorry. The one in Greece? Yeah, not the one in Greece. Best concert you've ever been to? Uh, wow. Uh, Paul Simon, uh, the Graceland tour. I sat and uh, he came to uh, Detroit and uh, at a place that had great sound. And I could hear like every instrument and it was so tight and so beautifully done. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm a huge admirer of Paul Simon. Oh, he's great. That concert, I think he, it was Simon and Garfunkel, the one in Central Park. In the I was 70s. at that one. You got, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, war memorial that everyone should visit. Uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, I didn't think I would be as moved as I was, when you stand on that bridge and look at those smokestacks of the thing and you realize, you know, all those bodies are still underneath mm-hmm. you, it, I get, even I get chills just talking about it. I, I it was, and I was there on the uh, anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, 
and there were all these survivors who were there. This was a number of years ago. And they, they were pointing, okay, and then I was on that ship there, and the thing went down there, and then we saw the, and one of them described how the, one of the boats came out of the water and lifted up and then split in half and then broke and went sunk to the bottom because mm-hmm. the bombs went right down to, to the bottom of the boat and actually blew it up from underneath. And they were crying as they were telling the story. I have never, never been so moved on anything militarily as I was that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, last question. For Mitch, one piece of advice for the listeners on any topic. <sighs> on any topic? Could be writing, could be life, uh, could be music. Be kind. I don't know. It sounds very, very trite, but uh, we have lost the uh, lost the ability to hold kindness as a as an attribute you know we think snarkiness or cynicism or anything like that is 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 better um we celebrate that in our art more than we do kindness we celebrate that in personalities more than we do kindness and you know like i tell you when i go to haiti every month the second poorest country in the world and um i just realize how far a little bit of kindness actually goes and how far a little bit of hope actually goes and Mm-hmm. I, I've told this before, but there was a critic who was making fun of me and my books um, and called me the king of hope. And I always said, if you're going to criticize me, you're doing it the wrong way because mm-hmm. that is a throne I will happily sit on. And uh, and I think we all should aspire to find find that hope in our lives. And if you do, your writing will be better, your work will be better, your life will be better. I love that. Well, Mitch, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Appreciate the drink. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.